try one more time. Um, how are you guys doing tonight? Amen. Um, so this is actually my first time here this year. I've been out of town a lot. Um, but can we give it up for the worship team, all the people helping us to be excellent in worship? They're not up here. They're, they're up here. But uh, you guys sound amazing. And uh, it's awesome to have brothers and sisters in Christ that can lead us in worship. Um, so if you have your Bible, be opening up to Philippians chapter 1. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm not going to use this. Um, be opening your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, that's our theme scripture for tonight, and we'll use this to kind of frame uh, the text that we're going to be looking at for most of tonight, which is actually in the book of Acts. Uh, so Philippians chapter 1, we'll read just a few verses. Um, so a little bit about, you know, my week. You know, usually when I speak for church, I usually bring my big preacher man Bible. It's three and a half inches thick, gold trim pages, ESV has my name inscribed in the cover, 14, size 14 font, Times New Roman comes with a bookmark. Just feel like powerful speaking with God's word, um, but I left it at home. So I have this, and I have my phone, and I have the people of God, and I know you guys are going to encourage me as I speak tonight, so I'm grateful for you guys tonight. Uh, so Philippians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 3, and I'll pull it up on my phone because I don't have Wi-Fi on my tablet. Um, so Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, this is a letter from Paul to the church in Philippians, or excuse me, the church in Philippi, and uh, let's see what he has for them as we read. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is Paul. Paul authored much of the New Testament. He's a Christian missionary, and he traveled over much of continental Europe and Asia, as well as the Middle East, planting churches all over. I think over the course of his career, he planted about 20 different ministries, and many of those ministries went on to plant subsequent ministries. Um, and this particular church is the church in uh, Philippi, and this is actually the very first church that he planted in Europe. Um, and he wrote this letter from prison, prison presumably while he's in Rome. And the reason why that's of great significance for us is even though he's in prison, he seems to have, you know, a positive attitude. For somebody who's in jail wrongfully in prison. He has positive, upbeat attitude, positive spirit, so much, in fact, that the Bible said he's praying for the brothers and sisters in Philippi while he's in prison, in spite of the fact that he's very close to the end of his life. Presumably, he's going to be uh, beheaded by Emperor Nero in just a little while. And so, um, as I was thinking about how to uh, frame the lesson for tonight, I was asking myself, what is it about Paul what is it about his convictions, his life, 
his, uh, you know, his knowledge of the scriptures? What is it about him that allowed for him to be faithful and draw near to God during this time? And so that was kind of the impetus for the lesson tonight. And uh, if you guys are okay with it, we're going to do a little bit of time travel tonight. I know you thought you were coming to church in Atlanta, but we're actually going back to first century Philippi. We're going to go to Acts chapter 16 and actually look at what Paul was doing in Philippi, see a little bit about his time there, see if we can gather a little bit about uh, his life and lessons from that. We're going to be in Acts 16. We're going to read, I think it's 15 or 16 verses. I need some help. I need somebody with a strong and powerful, booming voice as we talk about powerful prayers tonight. Um, so that's not me. I have a microphone, but maybe that's you. So I'm going to read verses 16 through 19. Chelsea's going to read verses 20 through 26, and I need one final reader. Kamala's going to read verses 27 through 23. Um, so let's look at Paul's life in Acts 16 and see what we can gather from it as we examine God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Yes. Oh, Amen. Brothers and sisters, so often as disciples, we get bogged down with what we're going through in life. I think we have to train ourselves to draw near to God, even when we're going through adverse and challenging and difficult experiences 
understanding that God is telling a bigger story. Amen? So our points for tonight, drawing near, point one, point two, powerful prayers, and point three is all about storytelling. Let's talk about point one, draw near. Look at your neighbor, say draw near. Look at your neighbor again. Don't look at me. Look at your neighbor. Say, draw near. Encourage your neighbor. Amen. Um, so Paul, Paul had a troubled life. No, so Paul had a troubled life, and it wasn't just because he grew up in a world without toilet paper, although I think that's part of it. But I think Paul had a troubled and difficult life. Paul, just one or two chapters earlier, was stoned. And apparently they did such a good job, they dragged him out of the city because they thought he was dead. Um, not only that, but he spent much of his life in prison, 30 years or so as a Christian missionary, and he spent about 20% of that time wrongfully in prison just for being a disciple and just for preaching God's word. Not only that, but he was lied about regularly, slandered. We even see that in this text, rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters, men and women that he loved and I think it's easy to look at a text like this and be like, oh, Paul, you're just having a tough time. You're having a bad day. But I look at this text and it's like, no, this is Paul's life every single day. This is what he signed up for. This isn't unusual at all. But to kind of bring this to more of a modern context, imagine, you know, you're on your way walking to midweek in Atlanta. Atlanta spread out, but pretend you were walking to midweek. And on your way there, you see somebody on the side of the road and you decide to kind of share your faith with them. But instead of hugging you or taking your information or something like that, they, say, they decide that you've wrongfully uh, violated their rights. And so they decide to call the police. And the police get there and they drag you to the courthouse in downtown Atlanta. And in the midst of the legal proceedings, the judge and the prosecution and the jury decide that they're just going to beat you up. They just whoop your tail, all of them. And maybe you have a conviction on turning the other cheek, or maybe you don't know how to fight. Whatever the case, they really beat you up. And after that, the judge gets back on his uh, stool, and he decides you're going to prison, even though we just beat you up. Mind you, all of this happened on your way to worship. You were on your way to midweek, just minding your business. And in the midst of all of this, the Bible doesn't say that Paul and Silas were bitter, it doesn't say that they were sulking in their feelings and in their emotions. It doesn't say they tried to numb their feelings with alcohol or marijuana or other substances. It doesn't say, you know, they did palm reading or a horoscope to see what their time in prison had in store or grabbed a laptop or a mobile phone to kind of look for some pornography and kind of make themselves feel better about their situation or eight hours of HBO or Netflix to escape for a little bit or online shopping, or reaching in the fridge for something greasy or sweet, right? It doesn't say they gossiped about the people who put them in prison. It said that they prayed, and it says that they worshiped. Paul and Silas had to pray and worship in order to draw near to God, and they had to fight in order to do that. They had to draw near so that they could feel God's presence, so that they can be led by the Spirit and demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, so that they can be ready and be expectant for God to move in a powerful way, so that they could take thoughts captive and replace those thoughts with 
things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, like it says in Philippians 4. They had to fight to draw near, and they did it with prayer, and they did it with worship. When you're in a situation where God doesn't feel near, what do you do first? What's your very first response? If you're like me, and I don't think I'm, well, I do think I'm unusual, but not in that way. Um, If you're like me, you do pray eventually, but it's not response one. It's not even response two. It's response four or five or six. Response one is be negative. Response two is be critical. Response three is emotionally withdraw from the situation. Response four is be critical. And then I remember, oh, I haven't prayed yet. I haven't worshipped yet. I haven't drawn near to God. Look at your neighbor. Say, draw near. near. Look at your neighbor. Say, draw near. near. Tough times are inevitable for disciples, but the question is, will you draw near even when God doesn't feel close? Will you draw near even when God doesn't feel close? What do we learn about Paul and even Silas in this text and about things that they did in order to draw near? I was studying this and I identified midnight, adversity, and relationships. So we're going to talk about each of those. Let's talk about midnight. Look at your neighbor. Say midnight. Verse 25. (laughs) Verse 25. Um, The scripture says at midnight... The Bible says at midnight, they started praying and worshiping. And this idea of midnight, at least to me, is a metaphor of of being removed and kind of not having distractions. If you've stayed up till midnight, which I'm sure many of you have, there aren't necessarily emails and texts and phone calls. Or, I mean, maybe it is if you're kind of into nightlife and stuff like that. But I think for many of us, by the time midnight happens, things are dialing down a little bit. Right, And so these gentlemen are in prison, and it's midnight. No phone, no text, no emails. It's the first century. What do you do at midnight when you're in prison? This is an opportunity for them to draw close because they don't have any distractions. And I think for many of us, you know, in 21st century America, we have so many distractions things that prevent us from having midnight, things that prevent us from being able to draw close. We have television. Television's not bad. It's entertaining. But if we just fill our lives with lots and lots of movies and shows and media, where is the time to connect with God? There's work. Many of you guys have very demanding jobs And you go home, and guess what? They're still emailing you, and they're still calling you. And you go home on Friday, and it's the weekend, and they're still reaching out to you. I'm in a PhD program. It's very demanding just all the time. It doesn't stop. And I get up in the morning, and I'm trying to have my time with God, but all I'm thinking about is the work that I'm going to do after I close my Bible. And I think for many of us, we're in the same situation. Work constantly keeping us from having that midnight where we can draw close to God. You know, maybe you're house hunting. Having a house is a beautiful thing. 
but you're worried about, am I going to get approved for the loan? Am I going to find a house for my husband or my wife or for my family? And it's weighing in on your mind. And you're not having quality time with God. Maybe you're stressed about student loans. They don't pay themselves. 40, 50, 60, 70, maybe 100K. You don't have a job. You're unemployed, right? You know, for me, one of the things that I've noticed, um, I regularly have my time with God, but I usually do it with, the, with my phone in the room. And so I'll get that text, or I'll get that email, or I'll get that phone call, and I'll tell myself, maybe it's something important. No, just kidding. Maybe this one's important. No. Oh, it's John Haynes. Oh, it's Vivian. Oh, it's Chelsea. Oh, it's Abram. I'll just do it this one time, but it doesn't, I don't have a conviction on getting rid of distraction so I can have quality time with God. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think many of us have to train ourselves to have midnight. Look at your neighbor, say midnight. Midnight helps us draw close. Adversity does as well. Paul was going through things, right? And the reality is, when we get stripped of things, sometimes that helps us to be closer to God. You know, I started grad school, and my grades honestly weren't particularly spectacular. My car died recently. I bought three new cars back to back. I spent like 15 grand in three months. It was a lot of money. And I'm like, man, I just feel like God is stripping everything, stripping me down to my drawers. I feel like I'm naked. Just taking everything. Take it all. (laughs) And I can say that, but I think the reality is sometimes you don't realize how far away you are from God until you're stripped down and God is all you have. And you see you're miserable. You're like, oh, I'm not very close to God. Adversity can help us be closer to God relationships. Paul was not in Philippi by himself. Even when he was in prison in Rome, he was writing a letter to the Philippians. Paul had relationships. He had Silas. We see that in the text. Luke is the author of Acts of the Apostles. Presumably, he's there as well. Timothy, according to Acts 16 verse 1, was in the mix as well. The time to build relationships is not when you're in prison and it's midnight. And your phone is dead. I think some of us were going through things in this room and we're frustrated and unhappy and we're bitter and we're like, where are my friends? Why aren't people here for me? But we haven't been building quality relationships. And now we have adversity and hard times and trouble and nobody's there for us because we haven't been building relationships. Relationships help us draw close, amen? Midnight, adversity, relationships help us to draw near. These are the things that help Paul draw close. What's going to help us, what's going to help you draw close to God? Point two, powerful prayers. Look at your neighbor, say powerful prayers. If we go back to Philippians 1, I mean, that's for me too, right? I got to remember what I'm talking about. Uh, If you look at point two, not point two, excuse me, if you look at Philippians 1, we see Paul writing this letter from Rome to the church leaders in Philippi. And he's in positive spirits. We see him uh, making this prayer. He does it just a couple of verses, starting in verse 9. It is my prayer that you grow with knowledge and discernment 
and produce the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. And then in Acts chapter 16, we see this in verse 25, he prays another prayer. And this one's different. We don't even know what the heck he says, but he starts praying and things start happening. Doors start opening. There's this crazy earthquake. Somebody's about to commit suicide. He saves them and then they get baptized. I don't know what he prayed, but he prayed something and all this stuff just started happening. And so thinking about point two powerful prayers, I have to ask myself, what makes a prayer powerful? Um, And I don't actually know. I can talk to you guys about what I'm thinking, but I don't actually know. Um, Because to say a powerful prayer, that implies that some prayers aren't powerful. I don't know what that means. And I think it also suggests that maybe some prayers are more powerful than others, and I don't know if I know what that means either. But I've been thinking about this, right? Uh, What makes a prayer powerful? Maybe it's how it's prayed. I know about you. I grew up, and sometimes people... I don't know, use a lot of big words when they pray, a loud, booming voice, lots of Bible verses. You're at the Thanksgiving table and they're like, God bless this macaroni and cheese. Let the cheese and its gooiness represent our devotion to the fellowship and one another. And you're like, Dag, this mac and cheese is about to be blessed. This is great. I'm like, I don't know if that makes a powerful, like big words and Bible verses, that's awesome. But I'm not really convinced that's what makes a prayer powerful. So I crossed that off the list. Um, maybe it's not how you pray, maybe it's what you pray. And so you're at the dinner table, it's Thanksgiving again, and you're like, God, I pray this mac and cheese is so great. My neighbors smell it from across the way. They come into the house, we break bread together. You know, they want to get involved with family group and study the Bible, get baptized. And it's like, man, that sounds crazy, but this mac and cheese is about to be blessed. This is great. And so... Maybe it's what you pray. Maybe it's not how you pray the big words, the Bible verses. Maybe it's what you pray. I wasn't really convinced about that either. I crossed that one off the list. So maybe it's not what you pray, or maybe it's how God answers the prayer, right? So we look at this text in Acts 16. We don't know what he prayed. We don't have it transcribed. Philippians 1, the prayer is transcribed. Acts 16, the prayer isn't. And so is it how God answers the prayer that makes it powerful? I don't know about you guys. I have like a huge pile full of unanswered prayers. And so if God doesn't answer my prayer, does that make it any less powerful? I didn't really like that explanation either. So I'm I'm still torn about what makes a prayer powerful. This is what I settled on. Um, You guys can let me know what you think about it. I think a prayer is powerful because of the situation you're in when you make that petition, and when you make that prayer to God. The conditions, the environment, the circumstances surrounding the prayer, that's what makes it powerful. You know, I grew up um, not too far away from here, two and a half hours away, Albany, Georgia. And um, I was there until I was 17, but I was in middle school. We had a family meeting, and we never have family meetings. Every family meeting since then has been bad news, so it's kind of foreshadowing. So we had a family meeting, and uh, my dad rounded us all up. He's like, I want to let you guys know that your mom has cancer. Like, cancer? He's like, yeah, I have breast cancer. I'm like, oh, cancer, cancer. Um, That was probably spring 2006. So my mom did treatment for about 16 months and um, chemo and stuff like that in and out of the hospital. Um, She flatlined twice during that period. They resuscitated her twice. 
um, summer 2007. She was kind of improving steadily. And I'm like, this is awesome. This is great. My mom's back home. She's around the house. Her hair is growing back. Exciting. You know, but it's cancer and cancer. It's really cyclical. Came back. She was back in the hospital. I'm like, man. And this time was different. She was in the hospital a couple of months, and um, ultimately, they approached my dad and they said, we could leave her on this machine the rest of her life, presumably. She's drowning. There's a lot of fluid in her lungs. We could do this the rest of her life. It's not really going to be a good quality of life, or we can take her off the machines and see what happens. Um, you know, we took her off the machines, and you know, my mom flatlined, and that was the last time I saw my mom. Now, I remember during that time, so many prayers by fervent and faithful men and women. Um, you know, lots of big words and stuff like that and Bible verses. But to me, the powerful prayers were what happened after my mom died. The fact that she died and people were still praying for me and for my family. Help him not to turn his back on the church. Yunk. This could derail his entire life. Help him to stay faithful and rooted, even though he doesn't understand. Give him peace. Even though he's frustrated and annoyed. I think you inspire people with your continued willingness to pray in spite of the situation. The most powerful prayers are the prayers you pray when you don't want to pray, you don't know what to pray, and you don't know how to pray because of the situation. Powerful prayers. Point three, testimony. Look at your neighbor, say testimony. Look at your other neighbor, say testimony. Um, think people, um, you know, people like stories. Um, recently, I've been telling a lot of stories on Facebook. And uh, <laughs> I've been having a lot of fun. I have no regrets. And... Um, what I've learned from that is that people like stories. You know, it makes sense. Kind of linear, and there's rising action and falling action and plot twist, plot development. Like, people like stories. And the only thing that's better than a story is a testimony. You know, a testimony is exactly like a story, but there's a spiritual application. You know, there's a spiritual lesson. It's like a proverb, except it actually happened. It's a story divinely orchestrated by God, where God is the writer, the director, the main character, the hero, the comedic relief. Testimonies are powerful stories. 
Look at this text in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas. And honestly, this is a crappy situation kind of from start to finish. You're in a foreign country. You're a missionary. You know, you're trying to do something awesome for God. You get taken to court. You get beat up in court. You get an unfair court case. You get thrown in prison. And this isn't a flattering situation. But there's no way they could have ever known what was going to happen when they were in prison. They were going to start the world's first prison ministry right there in Philippi, leading a room full of convicts in a prayer and worship service. The bailiff was going to get baptized, him and his entire household. There's no way they ever could have known what was going to become of their adversity. God was creating a powerful story. Our adverse experiences today will be our testimonies tomorrow. But you'll need prayer in order to get there. Say testimony. Look at your neighbor. Say testimony. What is your testimony going to tell us? Were you faithful in your prayers? Were you persistent even when you felt like there was nothing but silence? Did you press onwards even when there was reason to doubt? What is your testimony going to tell us? A couple of practicals here. I think one practical, and it's been kind of the case, we've been stressing it the past 15 months or so, relationships. We need relationships. You know, 40% of this ministry has been here for less than 10 months. So we have a church of a bunch of strangers who sit in the same room together. We need relationships. And the time to build that is not when you're in prison and your phone is dead and it's midnight. You got to build relationships now. And if you've been in this ministry and you feel great about your relationships, be a good friend to somebody moving in. Be a good friend to somebody else. Relationships. I think downsizing. You know, we live in America, and I think for myself included, for many of us, we kind of build our lives to kind of be as pleasant or as appealing as possible. Some of us need to strip some stuff out of our lives so we can draw near to God. The movies, the television, the media, people, downsizing. Sometimes you don't realize how far away you are from God until God is all you have and you're miserable. Some of us need to downsize. Um, Concerning prayer, pick a situation that seems hopeless to you and decide to be consistent about that in prayer this entire year. A powerful prayer is a prayer when you don't know what to pray or how to pray because of the situation. Those are powerful prayers. Now ask people about their testimonies. Be inspired by them and inspire them with yours too. As we're trying to train ourselves to draw near to God, no matter the experience, 
we need to understand that tough times are going to come, but we got to be faithful so we can have a testimony at the end of it. But we have to pray powerfully. Amen? Amen. Thanks for letting me share.